Good morning. My name is Chad. I'm the senior pastor here at Sovereign Grace. We're glad you're here. That said, look with me at Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to once again read verses 1 through 8. We're in this genealogy that started in Genesis 5.1. And I remember I told you guys there's a genealogy or a list of names and birth order, etc., followed by some kind of a narrative. And we're in the narrative part of that genealogy that started in Genesis 5.1 and ends in Genesis 6.8. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 again. And we're going to turn our attention especially to verse 5. When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand the word that your spirit has given to the churches. We know, Father, that Christ, the head of our church, speaks to us through his word by the Spirit. And we recognize that as we come to texts that in many ways are difficult, particularly texts that deal with the nature of our own wicked hearts, our own deceitful thoughts, that we are quick to run past them, And dismiss them rather than to feel the weight of them. As we hear what it is that Christ is saying to his church. We pray, Father, that you would give us help as we study this text. And that as a result of it, we would hate our sin all the more and look to Christ all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, wickedness, wickedness can be overwhelming at times, overwhelming. And we all know that, particularly in the current moment. We try to ignore it, particularly through entertainment, but it always confronts us, always. The world around us is a wreck, and we know it. We know it. And you don't have to look outside. I want to make this caveat. You don't have to look outside to find the mess of sin. You can look at your own heart and find it there. So if you don't want to turn on the news or go around and meet people to find the wreck of sin, just reflect on your own heart and you'll find it there. What's the solution 
to this overwhelming, seemingly all-pervasive sin. What's the solution to it? Is it education? See, I think there are a lot of people who think that the reason people do the wicked things they do is because they're not properly educated. And if we could just give them the right information, they would overcome their ignorance and do the right thing. However, they don't want to pay attention to the fact that historically, the most notoriously wicked men in the history of the earth were quite well educated. Is it a new political party? You see, the other two are not getting it done, so maybe we need another one. That'll solve the problem. Because that one won't become like the other two once it gains power. Is it the overturning of Hollywood's catechism of our children? And I want to be really clear. Both the public educational system and Hollywood are catechizing your children. What I mean by that, they are raising them up, discipling them toward particular beliefs. Actively doing that. Committedly doing that. Now, I do not mean every public school teacher and every person. No, of course not. Of course not. Is it an escape to a more innocent time and place? Will that solve it? If we could just, if we could just escape to a more innocent time and place. A place where we could build sort of counter-communities. Would that solve it? Listen, if we gather all the Christian folks, professing Christians we know, and we move somewhere, and we build a counter-community, we will soon find it will not take but a hot minute before we find that the sin is right inside that counter-community just like it is right outside that counter-community. Because we're there. This is the problem with your problems. You can't run away from them because wherever you go, there you are. Now certainly some of that stuff, maybe all of that stuff, could mitigate some earthly consequences of human sin. So I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Good government does mitigate some earthly consequences of human sin. Good education does mitigate some earthly consequences of human sin. But it doesn't resolve the central problem. None of that can solve the central problem. What we need is we need the Lord to come and to judge wickedness and to save his people. That's the resolution. And we actually see both of those truths in our passage today. The Lord's judgment against wicked men and the Lord's salvation of his people we see both in our passage this morning. So what we're going to look at this morning as we look at Genesis 6, 5 through 8, is first the sin of man or the depravity of man in verse 5. We'll look at that. And we'll look at that in some detail. And secondly, the saving promise of God in verse 8. Now, you said, what happened in verse 6 and 7? That's what you're probably wondering. We will briefly touch on verses 6 and 7, but this language, the Lord repented, the Lord regretted, the Lord sorrowed, is something we need to spend a bit more time on, so I'll pick it up again next week. But the sin of man and the saving promise of God is what we're going to look at this morning. So let's look first at the sin of man in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great 
in the earth. Now note the language of the Lord saw, and remember the contrast. In Genesis 1, as God creates at the end of the first day, and the Lord saw that it was good. Day 2, and the Lord saw that it was good. And day 3, and the Lord saw that it was good. And you go through and you hear that again and again and again through each of the six days of creation, take it to the sixth day, and then you hear the Lord saw that it was very good. Very good. And now you hear this refrain, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. You hear the contrast? It's also a contrast with what came before, which we looked at last week in verse 2, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and actually that word is, were good. They saw that they were good. Eve saw that the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was good. So she took. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were good, and so they took. And now you're going to hear, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every, notice the language, Every intention of the thoughts of his heart. How many intentions of the thought of his heart? Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Okay, That is a lot of emphatic language. And then there's one more. Continually. In case you're not getting the point. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. Now, before I break this down in much depth, I want to remind you that this paragraph in Genesis 6, 5 through 8 functions like a preview to a movie. Functions like a preview to a movie. What do I mean by that? You go to the movies and you sit there, it seems now endlessly, watching previews before the movie starts. They show you a little snippet of what's to come in a movie that's going to happen. So you see this preview. Well, Genesis 6, 5 through 8 functions like a preview to a movie. And what I mean by that is it's a preview to what's coming in the next genealogy. So there's a genealogy that starts in Genesis 2-4. The genealogy or the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then you get that story that follows that genealogy in 2-5 all the way through to the end of chapter 4. But when you come to the end of chapter 4... Remember I told you Genesis is arranged around genealogies. When you come to the end of chapter 4, you get a preview to the second genealogy. So following the first genealogy, you get a preview to the second genealogy. So look at chapter 4 and verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again. This is after the, the story of Cain and Abel. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now look at chapter 5 and verse 1, your second genealogy. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And then he's going to go on and talk about the birth of Seth and the birth of Enosh. In other words, at the end of the last genealogical section, you got a preview to what the sort of the coming attraction. And now at the end of... This genealogical section that starts in chapter 5, verse 1, and ends in chapter 6, verse 8, you're getting another preview. Man is wicked. God hates wickedness. He's going to destroy it, but he's going to save Noah. 
That's the preview. Now look at verse 9 of chapter 6. These are the generations of Noah. Do you see how that's working? And now we're going to hear Noah's story. So you're getting a kind of preview of what's coming next. Genesis 6, 5 through 8 is functioning in that fashion for all of Genesis 6, 9 through the end of Genesis chapter 9. It's telling you about the judgment of God in the flood and the salvation of Noah in the ark. Now look again at Genesis 6, 5 because I want to focus on this somewhat startling verse that points to our fundamental problem. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a startling text. Startling text. See, we like to think we're good people. You know, you're generally a good person who sometimes does some evil things. And if you did evil things, it was probably your parents' fault or maybe the society's fault, or maybe the educational system's fault, or maybe your spouse's fault, or maybe your children's fault. It's definitely caused by someone other than you. Because I wouldn't have done these bad things if it weren't for those other wicked people out there. That's how we tend to assess ourselves. You might say, no, I don't assess myself that way. But I will tell you, every time you sin against someone else, and the first words out of your mouth were, it's because you, you are assessing yourself that way. Because you're actually rooting causation somewhere outside of yourself rather than in your own heart. I said those things because I drank too much. Well, guess what? Alcohol didn't put those wicked things in your mouth. You guys know that there aren't wicked phrases that like pour into your mouth with the alcohol? You know that, right? All alcohol did was sort of loosen your mouth so that you could say the wicked things that were already there. And all that temptation from others does is loosen your mouth so you can say the wicked things or do the wicked things that are already there. And I don't mean that we merely sin when I say this. I mean that our fundamental problem is that we are sinners. We are born sinners and thus we sin. And that really presses us into a discussion of original sin. Original sin. So I want to consider the church's doctrine of original sin in four parts. That's why I'm really just camping out mostly on verse 5 today. Four parts. First, original sin is natural. You're going to shudder at that word, but I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. Original sin is natural. That's going to be the first part. Second, original sin is guilt and corruption. Guilt and corruption. Third, Original sin precedes, in other words, comes before actual sin. Original sin comes before actual sin. And fourth, original sin is totalizing. It affects every faculty. So I want to break those down. First, original sin is natural. Is natural. For something to be natural means, or of nature means, to be born that way. You're born with it. You're conceived and born in sin. Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That is not David saying his mom was fooling around. David saying, at his very conception, 
He was sinful. Keep your hand in Genesis 6 and look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at several texts today, so get ready. If you don't know where Ephesians is, it's in the New Testament, about halfway, well, better than halfway through because the Gospels and Acts are the longest section in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2. If you've gotten to Galatians, you haven't gone quite far enough. If you've gotten to Colossians or 1 Thessalonians, you've gone too far. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Listen to how Paul is explaining the church prior to their coming to faith in Christ. He's telling them what they're like prior to their coming to faith in Christ. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body or the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Like everyone else. By nature, children of wrath. Now, by natural, when I use the word natural, I don't mean when I say it's original sin is natural, I do not mean that it's of the essence of man. I don't mean it's of your essence. What do I mean by the essence? I want to say the sin is an accidental characteristic. Now, when I say the word accident, everybody thinks I mean like I tripped over that, that was an accident. I'm not using it that way. It's accidental in the sense that man's essence does not require fallenness in order to be man. So, for example, when I say it by accidental, I mean that you don't need that thing to be what you are, in other words, to be a man. By man, I mean mankind, not just males, just to be clear. So brown eyes are an accidental characteristic. Brown hair is an accidental characteristic. Tan skin, accidental characteristic. None of those things, if they were different, would undo your essential humanity. You could have pasty white skin, blue eyes, and red hair. You would still be a human being just the same. Right? You're not less human. What I'm saying is is that the guilt and corruption of sin are accidental characteristics. They aren't of the essence of man. You don't need them to be man For example, Adam, prior to the fall, was created in true righteousness and holiness. Prior to the fall, he's truly man. Adam, after the fall, is guilty and corrupt. He has a, if you will, sin nature, and yet he's still man. Christ, though born in the likeness of sinful flesh, was not born in sinful flesh, Yet, Christ has no sin because he was not born in sinful flesh, just the likeness of sinful flesh. But he's truly man. Truly man. Adam pre-fall and Christ in his incarnation are truly man. So Adam, in his state prior to the fall, and Christ in his incarnation demonstrate that man is not, in essence, sinful. That sin is an accidental characteristic that's come to us 
as a result of the fall. But our natural inborn sinfulness is a result of the fall. We're conceived and born in sin. As Adam is the federal head of all mankind. Thus we teach the children, in Adam's fall, sinned we all. Man is conceived in the guilt of Adam and is therefore corrupted with Adam. So we can talk about original sin as the natural inborn state of man post-fall. But that's not the way it's supposed to be and we know it. So that's the first point about original sin. Secondly, original sin is guilt and corruption. Some folks just want to lower it to the level of corruption and not guilt because they don't like the notion that you're born guilty. Okay, born corrupt, I can sort of get around that because, you know, I've raised children. I see it. But born guilty? Conceived guilty? But original sin is guilt and corruption. It's not merely the loss of true righteousness and holiness so that we're born in some kind of a neutral state. Nor is it just corruption so that we're born in some kind of a corrupt state. We're conceived and born in the guilt and corruption of Adam. His guilt is imputed or accounted to us. And thus, we're corrupted and fallen in Adam. In fact, the Apostle Paul contrasts two federal heads using that very language. He talks about Adam and his guilt being imputed or accounted to us. And Christ, the other federal head, and his righteousness being imputed or accounted to us. And he talks about them in parallel. So listen to what he says in Romans 5, 12. Just listen to what he says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through the one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Listen to what he goes on to say, verse 15. But the free gift, the free gift, the gift of righteousness, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Hear that? The judgment following one trespass, that's Adam's trespass, brought condemnation to all men. But the free gift following many trespasses, that's the free gift of Christ's righteousness, brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You hear the contrast? Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam's trespass, so one act of righteousness, that's Christ's, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many will be made Righteous, 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Do you hear the contrast? Listen, I constantly hear people complaining about how it seems unfair that Adam's guilt is given to us. 
I never hear people say, but, you know, that whole free gift of righteousness thing, I don't want that either. Third, original sin precedes actual sin. So original sin is natural. Original sin deals with guilt and corruption. Original sin precedes actual sin. Comes before actual sin. We commit actual sin due to our original sin. We do not share an original sin as a result of actual sin. So it's not like you're born innocent and as soon as you sin, now you have original sin. It's you're born guilty and corrupt and you sin because of that. In other words, you're not born innocent and neutral. You're not. Then, you know, after giving the sin, you become a sinner. You're born a sinner. And your actual sin is a result of your guilt and corruption in Adam. Your condemnation is just, listen, your condemnation is just before you ever commit any actual sin. It is your original fallen state that explains your sin. Friends, what is the wages of sin? Death. The wages of sin is death. So here's a question. Why would an infant ever die? I don't ask that casually or flippantly. Why would an infant ever die, given that the infant has committed no actual sin? Can we agree that a newborn has committed no actual sin? I hope so. So why would a newborn ever be subjected to death? if the wages of sin is death. Except that that newborn was conceived with the guilt and corruption of Adam, just like we all are. Now, we don't like to talk about it. I know it's oftentimes abhorrent for us to hear, but even infants are guilty and corrupt in Adam. Even before they commit a single actual sin, They are guilty and corrupt. Even before they're taught a single lesson by their parents or shown a single example by their parents, they are corrupted by sin. Parents, society, and circumstances did not cause any child to become a sinner, to be bent toward evil. Children are all born that way. You know that by experience as parents. You know it. You did not have to teach your children to be selfish. When did you give that lesson at home? Or disobedient or dishonest. You had to teach them not to be those things. You had to actually bring some sort of pain attached with that behavior so that they recognize, oh, when I do that, that has a painful outcome. You all know what I'm getting at here, right? So they don't want to keep doing it. Now, I want to carry this one step further and demonstrate that we're all born totally depraved. Totally depraved. Which is my fourth point about original sin. Original sin is totalizing. Now, what do I mean when I say total depravity? Let me first tell you what I don't mean. Because this is always important because I'm going to get these questions, so I'm trying to anticipate them in advance. I'm going to get the question... I know already in the email, what about babies who die in infancy? Are they saved or not? Because you just said they're guilty and corrupt. And Adam, can you please answer that for me in a short email message back? No. No, I cannot. If you want to sit down and have the conversation, we can. But let me tell you what I don't mean when I say total depravity. I do not mean that you are as depraved or corrupt as you can be from birth. 
In other words, I don't mean that when you're born, you're as depraved as you can be. I don't mean that. You're born degenerate, but your actual sins will lead you further down the path of depravity. Or you'll make choices that sort of restrain that wickedness. Listen, it's not hard to figure this out. You think of Hitler versus any decent unbeliever you know. Hitler is more depraved than some of your unbelieving co-workers. We'll make that a given. You're not as degraded as you can be. But the more you travel down that path of sin, the more degraded you become. So I don't mean you're as depraved as you can be. Second, I do not mean that apart from being born again, you can do no good in any sense. Because I'm going to come after this and tell you in a minute, you do no good at all. So first I want to say, I don't mean, nor does Paul mean, that apart from being saved, you can do any good in any sense. Now, there's a lot of qualifiers there. There are many good and decent men and women from a civil or common standpoint. There's decent people. They do good and decent things. Think of the unbelieving firefighters, which I'm sure some of them were, who ran into the Twin Towers on 9-11 and gave their lives to save the lives of others. Those were civilly or commonly good acts. We can recognize that. So I don't mean there's no kind of good in any sense whatsoever that unbelievers can do. You'll know why I said it, because in a minute I'm going to stress you don't ever do anything good ever at all. You're only evil continuously. So let's just give you that guardrail. I do not mean that parents, education, society, personal health, personal circumstances have no effect in any sense upon your degeneration into actual sin. Listen, you are more likely to travel down paths of ungodliness if you have ungodly parents. The father who spares the rod spoils the child. If you are not educated well, if you're not taught to form good habits and self-restraint or discipline for bad behavior, then you're likely to degenerate further into actual sin. If your society or your educational system or your entertainment is catechizing you in ungodly beliefs and behaviors, you're more likely to descend into their madness. If you don't notice that, then you aren't paying attention. You're not paying attention to what's happening in society right around you. It was less than a decade ago that if a high school student showed up to school with a tail on and identified as an animal, we would have said, that is crazy. You have lost your mind. We need to get you to some kind of mental health professional. Now, that's some kind of guarded activity that happens on our high school campuses. It's happening right now. Local campuses. These children have been catechized by social media, things like TikTok, Hollywood, etc., to believe all kinds of nonsense, and they've degraded further than they would have had it not been for that nonsense being taught to them. We know that because there's generations of people sitting here who understood all their lives what a man was and what a woman was and what a human was and what an animal was, and no one had to come along and say, you know, actually, you're a man. We just knew that. 
We weren't depraved in that way. So I'm not saying that in no way, shape, or form do external forces or circumstances contribute to our depravity. They do. If you're born into an abusive family or a home that suffers great tragedy or with particular mental health challenges, you're not going to be unaffected. And you'll likely respond with further actual sin. However, none of that is your fundamental problem. That's what I'm getting at. It's not your most basic problem. You only degenerate it further into sin because you were a sinner in the first place. You only commit actual sin due to original sin. Now let me say what I do mean by total depravity, because that's a lot of what I don't mean. What do I mean by total depravity? What I do mean is that every faculty of man has been corrupted by sin. Your mind, your heart, your will, if we want to divide things up that way, your body, are all fallen in Adam. There is no part of you that is left untouched by sin's guilt and corruption. No part of you. And thus it is not because of a lack of education or good parents or a moral society or health challenges that you're a sinner. You were conceived and born in sin. You are a sinner. Now I want to carry that a bit further. You are so guilty and corrupt that you're unable to do any good before God. What I mean by that is that while you might do some common or civil good, you will not naturally have the proper end in mind. Your good deeds will never be for the glory of God. They will always be for some earthly end. Look at Genesis 6-5. Go back there. Every intention, so you understand that language, we could say plans. And it's interesting language because it says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention or every plan, every device of the thoughts of his heart, we don't usually think about our hearts thinking, do we? was only evil continually. The Semitic mind doesn't quite divide things up the way we do, where there's mind and heart, and we don't tend to divide things up so neatly as we do. They're getting at the totality of the person. Mind, heart, and will, as we divide it up, all their plans, all their thoughts, all their devices, their schemes, were only evil continually. That's what they were. That's because the end of all your plans is you. All your good deeds and evil deeds are about you. Like Adam, we want to be like God. We want to be like God. We want to be a law to ourselves. We want to be our own sovereign. We're seeking our own glory. We want to be the judge of what is good and bad for us. God was the one who knew good and evil in the sense that God was the one who was able to judge what is the good and what is evil. And Adam wanted to usurp that role and be the judge of good and evil on his own, make his own calls about life. That's what we all want to do. That's not good for you, but I want it. I judge it good. God says any number of things aren't good for us. Divorce, outside of the reasons that Jesus and Paul give, In Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7, not good for you, but I want it. Pornography, not good for you, but I want it. Theft, taking something that belongs to others, not good for you, but coveting. We can go down the list. Not, it's here, 
How about this? Forsaking the gathering of Christ's people together. Do not forsake the gathering together, right, of yourselves. Clear. I've got other things I'd like to do. Those are better for me. You've just put yourself in the place of God. He told you to gather. You said that I've got a judgment that something else is better for me. I'm going to do that instead. I'm going to do that instead. We do it all the time, folks. All the time. And that's our lifelong problem. Look at Genesis 8.21. Lifelong problem. Noah has come out of the flood on the ark, and he's offering a sacrifice. And we read this in verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Listen, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's a problem our whole lives. Now, you might argue I'm drawing too much from this text. I don't know how you could argue that because only evil, every intention of his heart, only evil continually seems fairly clear. But all the way from his youth. But let's look at Romans 3. Go to Romans 3. Paul is going to quote actually from Psalm 14 in Romans 3, but we'll look at this expressly in Romans 3 because I want to look at a couple of other epistolary texts just after this. Romans chapter 3. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. Paul has told the church at Rome that he wants to come visit them. He has not been able to come visit them because he's been busy spreading the gospel all around the known world at the time. But he's wanted to come to the church at Rome. And he tells them, but I have one more task left to do before I come. I've got to go take an offering to the church of Jerusalem because of famine that was happening. And then I want to come to you. And when I come, I want you to support me financially and other ways so I can go to Spain and continue to spread the gospel. And he's writing a letter dealing with some of the issues there. And he's telling them, I want to come and tell you about the gospel. I want to build you up in Christ. And as he tells them that, he tells them that the gospel is their salvation. And then he goes on to explain why they needed that. Because the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteous of men. And so he goes on to talk about the unrighteousness of pagan Gentiles. And then in chapter 2, he turns and looks at the Jews and the church at Rome, if you will, through his epistle and says, by the way, you're not off the hook either. God gave you the law and you still walked in wickedness. You're just like them. So then he sums this whole thing up in verse 9 of Romans 3. Look there, Romans 3 and verse 9. What then? Paul was a Jew, if you remember. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. So how much better off are the Jews? No, not at all. Okay. For we have already charged that all, who? All, both Jews and Greeks. In other words, for them, there are two kinds of people, Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, okay? Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. That means it's like our master. It owns us. We're under it. We're all under sin. It goes as it is written. That's going to quote Psalm 14 and some other places, but none is righteous. In case you didn't understand the word none, he goes on to say, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And in case you haven't understood none, no, not one, no one, no one, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Is that clear? Okay, I mean, I don't want to 
just be making stuff up here. I think this is pretty clear right on the surface. I don't have to work very hard exegetically to demonstrate this. It's just right there in your face. Look at what he goes on to say. In quoting scripture, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you hear the judgment upon us all? Is it clear? We are all born self-seeking, self-sufficient, self-exalting, sinful men. And friends, it is not merely your actions that are sinful. You are sinful. I am sinful. Your inordinate desires are sinful. I bring this up, and this is again another caveat, but it's so important, because we are deeply confused on this note in the evangelical church today. Deeply confused. I keep hearing something like this. Well, something's only a sin if you give in to it. Or, I keep hearing this. I hear this repeatedly. Temptation is never sin. Never sin. But friends, that's just not true. We need to distinguish better. We distinguish better. First, every inordinate desire and ungodly thought is wicked. Look at Romans one twenty six. Just go back a couple chapters. Romans one twenty six. For this reason... It's because of their denial of God that he said he's clearly made himself known in verses 18 through 20. And then verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. But notice that they have dishonorable passions. Their passion, their, in this case, homosexual passion, is dishonorable. It's not neutral. It's dishonorable. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Their passions are dishonorable and their mind is debased. Debased. Ungodly. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians, they're in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The things that are earthly in you, by the way, here are sinful. Just so we're clear. They're part of the old Adamic nature. What is earthly in you, sexual immorality impurity, now note that next word, passion, next word, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You have earthly passions and evil desires. Look at Ephesians. Just go back to Ephesians. Your Colossians, then go back the other way, Philippians and Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in other words, unbelievers, in the futility 
of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now look down at verse 22. You're to put off your old man. Self is not really a helpful translation there. Old man, speaking of the old Adamic nature. Put off your old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. You hear that? Even your desires are deceitful, sinful. So the first thing we need to understand is that every inordinate desire and ungodly thought is wicked. You don't just have to do that deed. The desire to do that deed, wicked. Second, internal temptation is sin. So this is where we need to distinguish. When people say temptation is not sin, what they should be saying is external temptation is not sin, unless you give in to it. Internal temptation is sin. So I know it's popular to say it, temptation is not sin. That's only partly true. External temptation is not sin. When Satan tempts you externally, that is not sin on your part. When the world tempts you externally, that is not sin on your part. But when you're tempted by your own flesh, that is sin. Look at James, the book of James, chapter 1. It's right after Hebrews. James, chapter 1, and verse 14. But each person is tempted... When he went, listen to this, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. What James is talking about there is internal temptation. Your own inordinate desires leading to sin. Adam, in his original creation, when Adam was originally created, before he fell, he was merely tempted externally by Satan. But once he fell into sin, he faced internal temptation, the temptation of the flesh. Christ, the second Adam, the virgin-born son of God, who was not born a sinner, was only tempted externally by the world and by the devil. But Christ was never tempted by the flesh because while born in the likeness of sinful flesh, he was not of sinful flesh. He had no inordinate desires. He did not have anything internally tempting him to sin. The world and the devil tempted him, both external to him. But we're tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. You guys have heard that language. Two things external to us, one internal to us. That notion of the flesh is not speaking merely to our physical bodies, but to the reality of our fallen humanity. Thus, we're all tempted internally, and that is sin. So yes, all inordinate desires are sin. Adam, keep this in mind, in the garden prior to the fall did not have homosexual desire. That is a result of sin. He did not have adulterous desire or polygamous desire. That is a result of sin, as we see with Lamech in Genesis 4. He didn't have murderous desire. That's the result of sin, as we see with Cain and Abel. 
He didn't have child molesting desires. That's a result of sin. He didn't have any deceitful desires. That's a result of sin. He didn't have any selfish desires. He had no disobedient desires internally prior to the fall. Those are all born of sin, and they're sinful, and thus we're sinners. And the Lord finds our wickedness to be abhorrent. It's a stench to him. He is holy, and he cannot abide our sinfulness. That's what we see in Genesis 6. Go back there. Genesis 6. We'll try to wrap up here. Verses 6 and 7. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 6. And the Lord regretted. Probably better translated repented. We'll talk about that next week. And the Lord repented that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. For I'm sorry that I've made them. Here is the Lord's hatred of sin and grief over sin in some strong language. Language that I'll explain in more depth next week, but for now, let's just make it clear that God is eternally opposed to all sin. He hates it. He hates it. Note what God doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, it isn't really their fault that they're wicked. That was Adam's doing. They had bad parents. The society's a wreck. The educational system's poor. And then add to that, you know, the fact that they were born guilty and corrupt. I mean, it's hard to blame them. They tried their best. They're really good people. It's not what he says. No, God is grieved to his heart and purposes to destroy them. He is utterly opposed to their sin. He hates it and he places the blame squarely upon them. Now, all this human language wrapping up the emotions of God, I'm going to explain next week. But what I want you to get a hold of here is merely this. God is announcing to man his utter opposition to wickedness and his settled decision to destroy them with a flood, a decreation. I'm going to wipe it all out. God will judge all evildoers and cast them into eternal perdition. And here's the question I have for you. God hates sin. Do we? Do you hate it? He hates it. He will wipe out his entire creation because of it. Do we hate it? Are we opposed to it? When we sorrow over our sin, do we repent? Listen, if you sorrow over your sin, see it's bad and then you continue in it, you're mocking God. You're mocking him. And God will not be mocked. I just want to keep asking this question of all of us. We all sin. I'll pick up on this some next week. A lot of times our sin gets known. And the question I have for you is, is your repentance as well known as your sin? When we look at David a bit next week, you're going to see David's repentance is as well known as David's sin. He hated his sin. He repented of his sin. And he bore fruit in keeping his repentance. 
If you don't repent of your sin and turn to Christ, you will be punished eternally. He's not to be mocked. And so that's what I want to end with is what hope do we have in the face of that? If every thought of or every plan of the thoughts of our heart are only evil continually, what hope is there? The saving promise of God. Look at Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's a startling contrast. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This language for finding favors applied to Abraham and to Moses. It's such gloriously kind language. This little verse is sort of packed with gospel hope. Noah is being shown grace. Noah is being shown grace. In the midst of the curse in Genesis 3, God promised to send the seed of the woman who had crushed the head of the serpent. He promised a savior, a Messiah. And we're shown in Genesis 5 that Noah is in the line of that coming Messiah. Noah is descended from Adam via the godly line of Seth. The seed of the woman, the Savior, will come through Noah, and Noah is a type of him. Noah is like a picture of God's coming salvation through judgment. And Christ, when he came, saved us through judgment as well. Think about it. Noah is saved through the floodwaters of God's judgment on the ark. Christ saved us through taking our judgment upon himself. You might say that Christ experienced the floodwaters of God's judgment for us, and he carried us through as on an ark. All those who look to him are saved. Yes, friends, we're all guilty and condemned in Adam. There is none who is righteous, no, not one. No one is good. But I want to read to you what Paul goes on to say in Romans 3 just after that. After he condemns us, he makes this comment, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the Old Testament told us this righteousness from God is coming. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you hear how you're justified? Declared righteous, wicked sinners? How are you declared righteous? By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What did you do there? Nothing. You were merely the recipient of God's grace through faith. Faith is the open hand that receives the grace of God. You did nothing to save yourself from God's wrath. You did all of the sinning, and you did none of the saving. It was all of grace. You know you're a sinner. You know you deserve the justice of God, and God's justice will come, and God's justice will utterly destroy every sinner. But we learn here in this little verse what Matthew Henry so rightly said None are ruined by the justice of God, but those that hate to be reformed by the grace of God. So here's my question for you. Friends, do you hate to be reformed by the grace of God?
or is being reformed by the grace of God your great delight. If you do not know Christ, and I exhort you to look to Christ and be saved, God is not to be trifled with. He will condemn you for your sin. But there's a better word than the word of justice, the word that Abel's blood cries forth. There's the word of mercy or grace that Christ's blood cries forth. Christ has swallowed up the cup of God's wrath for us upon the cross. So as Christians, we hear that word of grace and we rejoice. It's because of those words that we can sing things like, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. And so we go on, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand the reality of what your word says about us, to believe your word rather than ourselves, to believe the decree of that you've given regarding our sin and sinfulness, and to believe the promise that you fulfilled in Christ, to trust him, to look to him, and to sing in thanksgiving. We know that all the sinning is from us and all the saving is from you. And we thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.